Sponsor StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are expanding on a concept that we kind of dug into a few episodes ago with Tim Davis. Infrastructure as code, pitfalls, trends. But this time, we got a different perspective from Rob Hirschfeld. He's the CEO of RackN, and he reached out to us and said, hey, you didn't talk about teams and collaboration. I feel like that's a key component of what goes into a successful infrastructure as code practice. What jumped out to you in the conversation, Ethan? Well, it's not just another culture conversation. I mean, it is, but but <laughs> we get into more how you structure infrastructure delivery around the idea of pipelines. And we build on the concept of dry, uh, don't repeat yourself, that we talked about with Tim and take it a, a step further. So sure, it's a good principle. The dry, dry idea is a big deal when you're writing code. But it can be a big deal for how you deliver infrastructure as code more broadly, and we talk about that. And that really captured my imagination. Yeah, we really that. focused on the fact that it is code that we're trying to approach here and using some software development techniques, but you can't lose sight of the infrastructure as well. So enjoy this conversation with Rob Hirschfeld, CEO of RackN. Well, Rob Hirschfeld, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. You are the CEO of RackN, and you are deeply invested in the world of infrastructure and infrastructure as code. And you reached out to us, man. You said, hey, I loved episode 127 with Tim Davis, but I feel like you were a little too focused on the tools, right? And the tools aren't everything. It's about uh, it's about more. There's a bigger holistic picture. So tell me, tell me where I'm wrong. What did we miss? <laughs> the, the, the tools are there for a reason. And, and the tools are beautiful and they're shiny and we actually have really good tools, but they have to be serving a purpose, right? Especially for infrastructure as code tools, they're trying to build automation that's code-like, right? That's the whole the whole purpose for <laughs> right. infrastructure as code. And and it's easy to get like, oh, I'm a Go programmer or Python, and like I'm gonna you know plant my flag on the moon for for that language, and forget that that it's it's not about the language. It's actually about how it fosters collaboration and reuse and modules and how it fits in your environment and how teams work together, right? You know, people aren't coding today as sole practitioners. They're coding as team activity. And so you have to look at how the tools that we're using foster and support the teams, or you've, you've missed the, the whole dimension. You've almost looked at it back. Right, right, because it's not just tools. If we're talking about DevOps, we're talking about infrastructure's code, we're talking about people and process and, like, culture. So... I, in terms of, of culture, if we're looking at an organization, do do the tools inform the culture? Does the culture inform the tools? Or is, is there like a Conway's Law sort of thing going on here? <laughs> oh, I'd love that question. Um, I would actually add a third piece because I think the infrastructure that you're working with, it's a, almost a three-legged stool mm. from that perspective. Uh, and so I think that the tools definitely have an impact with that. And then so does the, the way the team is structured and how you organize the team and then how, the, how you interact with the infrastructure is all an important component for that. And so what you need to think through here is actually that they influence each other and how they work. 
And one of the things that that really stood out in my mind listening to that, uh, the Tim Davis podcast, which I thought was excellent, was that we weren't talking about ways in which the tools reinforce team behavior. And and that, to me, becomes part of the thing. You you want things, and, and we we think about this a lot as we're building tools with RackN, um, is that are the tools that we're using and the platforms we're building and using as we build those tools and platforms reinforce what we want to see people doing in operations? Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a really simple example. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we've talked about this with where people go in and modify a server, right? It's, it's very bad for somebody to log in and fix a server by hand. And, and that's great. And I think we've gotten people mostly out of doing that. But the same would be true if you modify a script to do a one-off operation or a one-off action, you've basically also modified something by hand. It's not repeatable and reusable and then run it. What you really want to be doing is using tools that make it easy and reinforce the idea of, I'm going to fix things in ways that create long-term durable patterns, not one-off solutions. And, and that feedback loop, what, what I like to think of as a success cycle, like if you do work like that, then other people can pick it up, other people can add to it, and then they can improve that. And then you get this, it's a very code developer-like cycle where you're constantly improving the libraries and the components. Um, and so we have to look at, look at how we're interacting with our infrastructures, code, tooling, and platforms to create that virtuous cycle. Wait, uh, wait a minute. Are you talking about just workflows, like a, like a workflow and a nice UI that I interact with that other people can too, and because we all see it and we're thinking about things the same way we all get along and build on each other, that sort of a thing or something else? So the way I started thinking about it is very much like a CI/CD pipeline, but for infrastructure, what we're literally calling an infrastructure mm. pipeline, um, where the work that you're doing can be connected to the next team's work and the next team's work and the next team's work. So like in, in CIDC pipelines, they start off like one or two teams working together. Like I do build and I package it and, you know, hey, I've made progress. But the CICD pipelines that we're seeing evolve actually expand right all the way into, de, into, de, into production when work with the ops teams, they add in the security teams, they might actually have observability components baked into them. So as those, those processes get... Um, you know, more people involved, which we want, then that is actually part of having these systems connect together. So it, it, it's the interaction of various disciplines within the IT groups that support an application delivery stack and making it easier for those different groups to interact with one another in this concept of, you know, infrastructure pipeline. Because it's not just, you know, if you're a server-oriented person standing up a server, it's also all the things that go along with that, the networking and the storage and the security and then and then developers. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming we're not talking exclusive of developers, Rob. No, you. The, this is the, the fun thing about building pipelines. It's always been the vision of DevOps, right, is to be a cross-organization. It's why, why people pound on the table when you say DevOps engineer, <laughs> right? The purpose of DevOps is to connect all these, these groups together. It's not to delegate the role. Um, so yeah, it's exactly exactly what we're talking about. Um, there's another dimension with this too, though. Even the tools need to play along better together than they do. Do you, do you have an example of that um, where two tools right? are not working well together, or you don't have to call anybody out if you don't want to? 
<laughs> well, there's, there's an, I, I, I will in that, you know, there's this well-known pattern that people have dubbed terrible, which is terraform and ansible. <laughs> I haven't you heard know, that before. Together as a, as a, as a script. <laughs> I had not heard that. <laughs> you hadn't? Oh, goodness. Um, and, and the, the, the reason why we will talk about it as terrible is it's, everybody's doing it differently. It's a snowflake. And Terraform is designed to have its own state file and its own data right. set. And Ansible is designed to have its own state file and its own data set. And the, the problem, this is where collaboration is so important in these conversations, because it's not just, can my people get along and collaborate? Can my tools get along and collaborate? And what we've been doing, because we're so used to the silo thinking, is we haven't said, how do I take a tool and make sure that it can pull data from upstream in its use case and send data downstream in its use case. And how do I, you know, how, if I did that, if my tools did that well, then it would also make them easier to connect together. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be stretching a tool into a, you know, use case it wasn't right. designed to do. And I, I don't want to make this a tool show because that was like the whole point is not to make this a show about tools. So maybe <laughs> I, I think I want to go a different direction with this. When you're thinking about an ideal setup for uh, a team that's practicing good infrastructure as code or even an organization, who's on an individual team? Like what sort of contributors do you expect to be on a team? And then do you have separate teams that just have an mm -hmm. expertise they loan to you? Like what do you think of as your ideal structure? Or is there no ideal structure? Uh, and some of that is cultural fit. And this is one of those ones I, I bounce on in my in my career, right? I, I, I do typically think that the idea of a full stack engineer is toxic in our ooh, industry. Ooh, expand on that because um, a lot of people want to be a full stack <laughs> engineer or they want to hire one. So why do you say that's toxic? Uh, it's toxic because what we end up doing is it's, it's a focus on individuals, mm. not on teams. And it's a focus on an individual who has enough skill to walk something through every component of what the development process needs to be. Now, totally think it's important for every tech, technical person to understand other parts of the stack. But the idea that you're going to, you're going to, you know, I, I'm imagining this huge backpack, right? You're going to, you're going to turn that person into the Sherpa for the, the environment and have them be responsible for every step of this process and then feel like they can't ask for help or feel like it's all on them and they have to understand each piece. It's just, it's, it's, it's taking something that's super complex and burdening somebody with trying to understand it. Right. Now, it would be fine if we said, hey, you know, and this was, um, Valve did a really nice job with this on the, on the T-shaped engineers, where they're like, look, we want people with broad knowledge, but deep, you know, mm -hmm. some deep specialties. And so I think full stack engineer causes people to get distracted um, and then not, not realize that they do need help. So you, know, you would ask me, so do I think that we should, we should let people silo? And our experience you know, deeply in organizations is that the silos are not bad. The networking team and the storage team and the compute team and the security team, those specialties mm -hmm. are real. And there, there's deep knowledge that's necessary to do a good job with those things, those, those different areas of aspects, those areas of expertise, whether they're in their cloud or on-premises or edge. Uh, but the thing that gets toxic in those relationships is when they get territorial and don't, don't, right. don't collaborate. 
Right. So this is where that 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 becomes the real the real challenge on the other side that drives people to full stack engineers. It's like I don't want to deal with all these other teams. They slow me down. <laughs> Uh, and that's, that's right, so too. Uh, to a certain degree, you're thinking about how do I reduce the friction between the silos, but still maintain that high level of expertise where I do have the T, the top of the T that you were describing. That's general knowledge across a bunch of disciplines enough that you can talk to if I'm a storage guy and I want to talk to the networking gal, I know enough to speak her language, but not enough to do her job. And then I have my my the 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 I guess the middle of the T that's my deep expertise into storage so that's that's kind of what you're advocating, right? That's that's exactly exactly what what we're seeing works very well when you when you in, enhance the collaboration. Now we're back to collaboration, right? When you enhance the collaboration between those expertise and have a, a way for them to work together, that really does change change Stay the ballgame. So, so, so what's the what's the tool rule here? How, what, or, I'm sorry. What is the tool role here? Is it to mm. keep the pipeline not so siloed, so that you see the delivery stack as a whole integrated thing, of which your team or maybe you as an individual contributor have this expertise and handle this part of it? And but you can see, oh, the security team is going to engage here and then add their stuff. But I can see it; it's not hidden from me. Right. That that's where the, and and each team has tools that work really well for them. We don't want to take tools out of people's hands if if they do what they're doing and they're natural and they fit, right? Especially if they've evolved over time. That's what I mean by having excellent tools. But if the tools can't fit together, that's the, the pipelining concept. If the, if the tools don't fit together so that you're exactly right. We want to be able to say, "Hey security team, the work that you want to do, I can put into a pipeline. I know it's going to work. If it's not working, I can call you up and say, fix it, right? Or improve it. But I want to be able to use that work over and over again. And I don't want to have to call the security team every time I want to run their, their part of the process through, through my environment. The pipeline becomes the, how what the, the, the component of delivery that the humans rally around. They rally around the pipeline. They might be using their own individual tools still, but they're unified and, and get some uh, flow to the delivery based on the pipeline. So as long as the tools can interface with the pipeline, we're, we're okay. Is that your argument? It's, that's exactly right. It's a coordination. The pipeline provides the coordination. It doesn't, it doesn't enforce everybody. You, know, you, you don't want to take agency away from individual teams. What you do want to do is, is actually, you actually want to increase the agency of the individual teams and then minimize the disruption. This is this was the thing, this is a paradox here from a complexity perspective that I had to get my head around, which is it's okay to have a lot of tools or a lot of platforms or a lot of environments, right? That that is actually normal. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that yep. you're gonna wake up one day and you know cut a whole bunch of stuff out of your existing environment is is a fallacy. So the, the thing that you need to do is, is embrace that it is complex and heterogeneous and stop yearning for, oh, if only those other teams would stop using their misguided tools and platforms and clouds, <laughs> right? right? It, you know, and, and wake up to the way I do it and everything would be so much better. It's, that's, that's, that's actually not a helpful well, attitude. The, it's much better to say, I'm going to reduce the complexity of my organization by allowing my work to flow smoothly through the organization and connect to the teams that have to consume it. If I have nice, nice boundaries between my work 
right? It's decoupled from that perspective. And then I can coordinate those actions. It actually changes, changed the way I thought about what we had to do to manage complexity. Now, one thing that I've seen in organizations, they've started to embrace this idea of having a platform team, a team that provides a platform to the rest of the teams. And to a certain degree, that could provide a bounded and homogenous environment all the other teams are using. So do you support that? It almost sounds like what you're saying is, no, you got to embrace the chaos and and the fact that everybody's going to be using something different. (laughs) Uh, I, I think platform teams are a really good idea, and I'm watching, uh, like, the customers we interact with are form, are forming them. The The challenge is it feels like IT in the 90s. <laughs> okay. Which which is that, right, in the, in, the, in the 90s, we had PCs. You know, we went from mainframes to PCs, and that basically, and we did the same thing in cloud, in cloud governance. That's actually where we are is what we're facing. But so let me go back to the 90s analogy. You know, what, what happened is people started buying PCs and saying, I'm just going to run Excel and Word and whatever on my PC and, and get around all this IT governance stuff. And we did that for a while. And then all of a sudden, we, we had viruses and worms and support issues and all this stuff. And so IT showed up and started controlling what you could do on your PC and mm-hmm. governing it. Right. And that was that was really hard. <laughs> it was really, really hard. Um, but it was a necessary uh, swing in how those things worked. So I, I think the platform teams are required. I think that we we need to figure out how to make platform teams work. Um, and we also have to have the platform teams acknowledge that they're walking into a situation where there is a lot of governance challenge, where the, the teams have already built their tools and chosen their clouds and things like that. So the platform team can't be the, um, the team of no. Right. Like IT used to be. <laughs> they have to be enabling something that goes further. And and they also have to be, you know, have a mandate for management to say, yeah, you actually do have to spend the time collaborating with the next teams over. Um, so because there, there will be impacts, right? If you take a team that's not doing a security scan as part of their pipeline and say, hey, you know, now you have to start doing security scan, it's going to slow them up. It's going to take time and investment. And you know, there has, you know, that that is going to be an impact. Right, they're on them. It's a beneficial impact, but if you're not used to it, it's it's a negative one. Initially. Yeah, there's definitely a challenge for any application team that's trying to get the new version of the application with some whiz bang feature out, and they don't want to be slowed down by the fact that oh, now we have to add the security scan, and you know what if it comes back with a whole list of mm-hmm. things? Now I have to investigate all those vulnerabilities, and my boss is saying. I need this application out tomorrow to meet, you know, some whatever the made up deadline is or the promise they made to a client. <laughs> so, like, I guess, how do you balance that in in the organization? Is it is it a culture thing? Does it come from the top down? Mm-hmm. Um, it. I actually think it's better when it comes the other direction, when it comes organically upwards. And and this is the other the other piece to this. And this is where infrastructure as code to me becomes a really powerful story in the platform team mission. Because a lot right right now the way automation is structured is it's it's, it's like the old um, going back to all my '90s analogies, Visual Basic era, where people were just like right, hacking their own code and writing their own thing, and even if they were using code they got from somewhere else, they couldn't put it back. It was it wasn't reusable, it wasn't right. modular. And and so I think part of the part of the the platform team's job is to understand their their ultimate goal is to build the pipelines and connect everything together. But on individual teams' basis, 
they're actually fostering infrastructure as code reuse and modularity. So every team benefits if they give up the toil of writing automation that they don't want to maintain. Right. And so the, the, that, that's a really big deal, right? And, and one of the things that, that we spent a lot of time asking is why is, is automation not, isn't more modular? Right. Why, why does it, um, uh, you know, one of the, the formation stories for RackN is we used to ship clouds from the factories at Dell. Um, and we did this MVP style. So literally, um, we would ship a rack of servers that we built in the lab, and then our CTO would fly at the same time and go help install. So our CTO now, he was, he was one on the team at Dell. But what, what, happened, what would happen is every time we would deploy those servers, right, it would take an engineer building the rack up to the spec on site. And then, and this is where we got really frustrated, we'd come back home, you know, be celebrating over beers, another cloud installed, yay. And we'd get a, you know, we'd get a notification that there was a patch or a change or some, something that, that went on. And that was fine. We'd fix it for that one, that customer we just installed. And the but is huge, but it was impossible to take that fix or change or improvement and repeat it for the last five customers that we'd installed before that. Right. And, and so we, we had this problem where we could keep improving the automation that we would deploy day one, but it was, it was so hard to reliably take anything we'd improved and fix a site we'd already built. Right, that just drove us nuts. It still drives me nuts. And I watch people write automation code that only works for their team. And, and that is the, that's the problem here. That's what the platform teams can, can bring in you know, and be welcomed in with open arms. It's like, hey, here's automation that you can use. And if you improve it, other teams can improve, you know, will get the benefit. It's relatively, it's relatively easy to write code or a script or infrastructure's code that matches your individual use case because you know exactly what the inputs should be and what, you, what you're trying to build. When you try to abstract that out to meet more than just your use case, maybe your company's use case or something even more generalized than that, that's hard and people have stuff they're trying to do. I mean, you founded a whole company to make these abstractions because people weren't going to do that on their own. Right. So how <laughs> yeah, does the right. platform team go about building these modular abstractions that work across, you know, the entire organization? So part of this is using tools that reinforce those practices. Um, some of it. So, so I'll, I'll tell you how we solve it and, and people can do it, you know, take, take their lessons and uh, figure it out from there. Um, there's, there's about three or four things that, that are really key. For this, one of them is having well-defined inputs and understanding. They're small, small units of work, very important, right? This is coding. Right? <laughs> this is what's so funny. This is coding 101. It's not, and and we just haven't applied coding practices. This is where my head explodes. With we call it infrastructure as code, and then we get we we, we do Git and YAML and we call it done. <laughs> it's not. The, the goal here is to make it code-like, and that means we have modular, small components. We have ways to Define variables in ways that are understood and and you know crisp. Like one of the challenges is we have a whole bunch of stuff that you can define variables willy-nilly. And most languages, right, don't do that, especially highly collaborative languages. They they actually want 
classed and typed things so that if somebody misuses a variable, they, t they get feedback <laughs> or the, the system right. stops them. Um, and then the other the other thing that we we had we did that was it's taken a long time to get it to get it right, but it, the benefits are amazing. Is we have made the code that goes into these systems immutable, and when you're distributing these these small modules of work, you can base you it compiles the wrong word, but you can you put them into a bundle, and that bundle when it shows up in the system is a, is an immutable artifact. So you don't get this oh, I modified two lines of code to fix my case. You actually go back, fix the bundle, re-upload the, the unit of work. So the variables and the tasks and the parameters and the templates and all that stuff gets set together as a unit, like a coding module. And then it can be distributed and redistributed and versioned. Mm -hmm. Version control is really important in this. Right, it's, it, it ends up feeling very code-like. We pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor StrongDM's Secure Infrastructure Access Platform. And if those words are meaningless, StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is. It sucks, right? StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. StrongDM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. They suggested we say no BS, and if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have, and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers. And now, back to the podcast. It does end up feeling very code-like, Rob, and there's a big question here for me yeah. because of that. We're talking about developer-centric skills being applied to infrastructures so that we can deliver infrastructure as code in a, in a proper way, not a myopic way, just my thing, I can build a script that does X. So <laughs> yeah. what is the core expertise of a platform team? Is it that the platform team is made up of a bunch of devs who are dedicated to creating an infrastructure as code delivery platform? Oh boy, you're hitting on one of the other things that I see that, that actually makes me a little nervous. Um, because operations is not typically, it, I think there's a lot of development done in dev, but it's not done in... Um, as code necessarily. Uh, and by code, I mean compiled code. So like right. I, I'm watching, um, there's a couple of, of, of 
of products out there, and there's there's some major Kubernetes prod projects that like take the whole deployment of Kubernetes and compile it as a Go Go component and then distribute it. And and the challenge with that is is that operations tends to need high transparency in how things mm. operate and also a degree of flexibility to to run a script or add a script or modify something. And so the the balance is you do want it to be code like, but at the same time you don't want to create a scenario in which you know an operator has to feel like they're they have to learn how to program in Go in order to fix a problem or even understand. Actually, it's 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 not even fix understand a problem. So a lot of the stuff that we've been doing, it ends up being Bash, right? It's it's not or PowerShell or so if you, you can look at an individual task and it's still using Bash, it's still scripty. Mm -hmm. This is like, it's, it's been, <laughs> the, the, the answer was not, hey, code everything in Python and or Go and make it Python and Go. There's a reason why Ansible and Terraform, right, aren't, you know, Chef and, uh, actually Chef and Puppet ended up being a lot very Ruby-y and got some resistance from those perspectives. Um, so no, you, you don't want the operators to become programmers to run infrastructure. And I actually think that that's, an, that's if, if you have to compile your code to fix your infrastructure, I think you've, you've, you've potentially locked yourself into a, a risky pattern. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of times when like I'll find something that's not working right or we, we hit a new operating system and I'm like, oh, wait a second, this operating system, you know, I can't just do a yum. Uh, Amazon, I'll be very specific. Amazon's Linux, <laughs> which is fine otherwise, and mostly uses yum every once in a while, does not use yum. And so you have to put in a, if family this, add this extra command, and and then you're on your merry way. And the fact that I can do that, update update a template, rebundle it, and then send it back into the system for testing is huge. It's absolutely huge, right? It doesn't require me recompiling a whole bunch of code in the process. I can make the changes just like you would expect to if you're an operator and move on. Right. I think part of the idea behind compiled code is the idea that it runs faster, right? Because it's compiled, it doesn't have to go through an interpreter that needs to parse it and then turn it into whatever is actually going to execute it. So I, there's definitely a perception that compiled code runs faster. But uh, that, that's not always the case, <laughs> right? I think that's just a general perception. And that if you're a real programmer, well, and it, and you compile. If you don't compile, you're not a real programmer. You're just you're just a, a scripter. <laughs> well, and I, I think one of the other things that makes infrastructure programming so different than uh, development programming is that infrastructure programming is re reactive. You, you, there's so much in infrastructure programming that is dealing with the complexities of the systems that you get and accepting, right? There's, there's a Zen to it, right? You can, you, <laughs> you can say, ah, you know, I, I wish I didn't have to worry about this. And, you know, in, in development, you're sort of in control of your whole environment. In infrastructure programming, you might get into a place where you're like, oh, okay, Amazon's APIs are implemented this way and Google's are that way and Azure's are this way. They're totally, they're, they're totally different. And you don't get to, you know, rage quit <laughs> because you can't eliminate that, those differences. You have to zen in and accept it, and then you have to code around the heterogeneity. And this, but this is where the platform teams add a lot of benefit. You can come back and say, all right, these differences are network team differences or compute team differences, and if you can, if you can get them 
to have a shared place where they can work or shared segments in the pipeline where they can hand off that work section to section, then all of a sudden it transforms, you know, you pulling your hair out because I've got the wrong infrastructure, right? Or the wrong, you know, I don't know enough to build the network correctly. You can say, hey, network team, I need you to help build this thing in this way and then reuse that code. Okay, so it sounds like in terms of staffing up a platform team, what you're really looking for are people that are comfortable with software development concepts, but they have a deep understanding of how infrastructure works and the challenges around it. And they know who to go talk to <laughs> when they're trying to put something together. And then they're responsible for building these templates and these modules and these reusable components and maybe even uh, an example pipeline that the other line of business teams are going to then leverage for their applications. That's one of the things that SREs, the SRE movement, if you will, re I really liked in it was the, the toil, the, de the concept mm. of toil and reducing toil. Right. And I think part of what what you just described to me can be framed in a toil perspective. Right. Now, you have to have a, the, the, the bandwidth or the, the capability and the investment to be collaborative in it. But if you can go to a team and say, you know what, instead of you having to worry about how the networking or storage or compute is set up, we can give you a standard library. Now, you're not taking and this is this is key. You're not taking away their ability to do that work. What you've done is you've you've packaged somebody else's expertise in a module that they can include in their pipeline. Right. Does that does that like in a developer, you don't want to go to a development pipeline and say, developer, you now have to be a security expert when you write your code. What you'd really like to do is say, we're going to put auditing tools that check your code for mm -hmm. you. So that you 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 can relax about you know about that thing a little bit. Um and then, then everybody gets to work in, the, in that. But yeah, if, if you're not showing up with, with stuff that, that works, and this has been part of the challenge of building up these pipelines, you have to have enough for platform teams. They have to have enough working things that it is a benefit to the team when they show up that you're taking work off their plate. Right. You're reducing their toil. <laughs> exactly. Yes, you are reducing their toil. And do you, do you find that platform teams are usually built out of existing teams that are excelling at what they're trying to do with an organization. Like if you just have one particular, you know, line of business app who has a team that's just <laughs> rocking and rolling, they built all this cool stuff. You go, Ooh, you two, um, I'm going to borrow you and put you on a platform team. Is that the Genesis that you see? <laughs> um, not, not as much directly. Although I think there's, there's benefits to that, um, that, that can have its own downsides. Um, unless the people want to do that, unless right. If those if those individuals are already evangelizing the this approach, then then sure it makes perfect sense. The way I see the platform teams evolving is actually out of shared use of tools. So some of what what I've seen happening with platform teams is a response to, God, we're using a lot of Terraform, and nobody's using it consistently, and we we aren't sure how to secure it. Um, and you get the same thing for Ansible. You get actually the same thing for a cloud platform. Like, you know, hey, we're using Amazon and the bills are crazy and we're using it all these different ways. So what I've seen the platform teams really, they're reactive to we have a uh, consistent use of something, but um, we're using it inconsistently. <laughs> okay. Right. We are ubiquitous use. 
but inconsistent use. And the platform teams sort of arise out of the, you know, I can't cross-train people, I can't secure it. The security team shows up and says, okay, nobody's consistent, so I can't, I can't spend the time auditing all of this stuff because it's taking me too long to figure out what each person does. And if they fix it, and this is, this is a key thing, this is actually why I think companies need to look at platform teams much more um, in a much more accelerated way than they are, is if you go to fix something for a team and they're using a bespoke, even if you understand, you're like, oh, I can read this. It's great. I know the tool, but it's bespoke. The time it takes and the risk to fix something so that it's portable across different different infrastructures is really high. Right. Um, and that's that's... That's that's bad, right? You don't want your security team to show up or your your cloud team or your, your hardware team to show up and then break the teams that are running on top of them. And so you have to, that consistency allows you to then have what we see happening is a dev test prod automation process. Okay. You know, it, it, it reminds me a lot of manufacturing, basically, where you want to have standard parts that different lines of business can use, right? I mean, this is like manufacturing 101. If I'm an automobile manufacturer and I produce 18 different types of cars, there are going to be common components in all of those cars. And I don't need to redesign the widget that makes the window go up 18 times. I just need to make a window widget that works consistently across 18 vehicles. And like, that's what the platform team's responsible for. Make the window go up and down. <laughs> Going back to the episode that we recorded with Tim, Ned, it's don't repeat yourself effectively. Right. It's the dry principle. Yeah. Dry is, is so critical. Although I think you do want to take it that one step further. It's like, don't repeat yourself across teams. So Tim's, Tim's right. comment was very much like, hey, I want my Terraform plan or my Ansible thing or my right, to be dry. What, what I'm saying is you want your pipelines to be dry. Yeah, take it that one um, step above to the the, yes. the thing that's your orchestrator, your automation platform. That also has to be consistent and repeatable across all these different lines of business. And and then then you can actually start doing modular things like you know where CIC pipelines have a lot of reusable pieces. You want to have each team running a pipeline. It doesn't mean they're running the same pipeline. That wouldn't make any sense. But they should be running pipelines that are composed of consistent pieces. And if you can do that, right, this is back to the tools reinforcing themselves. You, you want to have a high degree of benefit for I've made this, um, in, you know, this installer work for the scenarios of all these teams because everybody's now using the team, that, that one process. Um, and if they can reuse that process, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a deep example from what Rackend does. We spend a lot of time on RAID and BIOS configuration for customers. And, but most of our customers have teams that do RAID and BIOS configuration. And there are teams that resist that, giving up that, that skill for it, and they keep investing in, in it. And it's not adding a lot of business value, but, but it's, it's a known part of the process. The, the challenge becomes how do you, you know, eliminate the toil of having to reinvent that process? Because the way we do it is different than the team is doing it, and that creates churn, and all, every, you know, there's angst. But, but at the end of the day, it's like, well, if, and this is where the, the value comes in. If we improve it because we find something with another customer or we work with a vendor and, and, and use their new tools, then nobody on the company has to figure that out. Mm -hmm. It's been figured out. 
And that translates across the board into an acceleration, right? It's always, you know, you have to think of it. The platform team has the ability to significantly accelerate teams all across their organization if they can get people reusing code, code patterns. And if they fix, you know, it could be they, oh, yeah, I fixed the log for JBug in our Java deployer. Great. Everybody now gets the benefit of using that. A lot of companies are doing this team by team by team because they don't have the process. Right. So it requires a certain level of discipline within the organization across the teams and, you know, some sort of leadership to, to get the platform team up and running and actually get all the other teams on board with using what the platform team is creating. And I think that only happens, like you said, when the platform team is actually creating something of value that's useful <laughs> to all those teams. <laughs> I, although, I mean, I do think there's an element if you if you're looking at the executive buy in. And to me, the IAC, the infrastructure as code mantra here is I want my, my operations teams to look more like the development teams. And if my development teams were rewriting libraries that, that they could just pull in and use, right. I'd be upset. Hmm. And, and, and we should be having that ex expectation. You know, we're, we're deep, deep into this cloud and automation thing. The fact that we don't have as much reuse out of, you know, automation pieces across teams or across the industry, um, that really troubles me. Like we have good tool reuse, we just but we don't reuse something simple like how an install is done or a library is updated. Right, right. Well, Rob, this has been a, uh, like a real fascinating and, and interesting conversation. I feel like we could probably go on for another two hours or something spinning on this, mm -hmm. but unfortunately we are starting to run ahead of time. What are some key takeaways or, or main points that listeners should come away with? Oh boy, there's there there are there's a lot of topics that we could we could spend whole uh, podcasts on on going deeper. So maybe I'll try and hit those as as some of these these takeaways. Um, I do think that we need to think through this concept of of infrastructure as code pipelines, and and start figuring out how to connect things together. But you don't need to connect an end to end pipeline. You can just connect two things together, right? In, in a team, two tools together, two teams can collaborate better. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I, that's, always, that's, that's really important. Um, I think that when you look at how you're using the tools and what the tools are doing, review what your, your, your process is and think about if it's creating forward benefit and encouraging, right? Sometimes there's more work to do it, but it's so important to, to create collaboration and, and have your tools reinforce the collaboration that I think that's worth people sort of thinking through. And if you looked at some of the tools you're using and asked that simple question, it might have you re-gauge re mm -hmm. that from that perspective. Um, and then the third one to me is embrace that things are heterogeneous and that complexity in itself is, is an expression of, of what we actually have to cope with. It's not, it's not, it's not bad or evil. Right. You're, you're not you don't want to run around and just strip the complexity out of your systems. It serves a purpose. Sometimes it serves a really important purpose you might not even understand yet. But you have to be zen about it. You have to come in and say, all right, I have complexity in my systems. Let me look at how do I manage it better so I'm not burned when something unexpected happens or decouple from from other complex systems. So, you know, those are those are three things that I think are really important as you build these systems. Um, and if you do those things and think about it that way, I think it will give you a much more resilient, robust, and um, calmer uh, day. Right? 
infrastructure. Right, right. Uh, if folks want to hear more from you, I know you've got a few different ways people can either reach out or, or listen in. So if you want to plug those, uh, now would be the time to do it. I'd be happy to. I am Zeichel, Z-E-H-I-C-L-E, on most platforms. Um, very active on Twitter and a lot of these things we've, we've been talking about. Um, at, you, can, you can download and try and, and experiment with, rat, with, with what I'm talking about in, in our product called Digital Rebar. Uh, if you visit rackn.com, um, a lot of what we do is it's software and we encourage people to download and try it and get firsthand experience. So um, I'd encourage people to check that out. We actually are building a lot of content on infrastructure pipelines also. So if you're interested in more about that, that's definitely a good place to go for that also. Um, I have one more. I'm, I'm giving you a, a outtake potential, but um, <laughs> so, so um, I've also been running uh, a roundtable, open roundtable session called Cloud 2030. And that is uh, been really remarkable for, we've been running over 18 months uh, twice a week, we have a DevOps discussion, uh, and then we also have a strategy discussion. And people just show up and they talk about, you know, sort of big um, issues that are confronting our industry, where things are going. Um, we sort of put an agenda of topics. We love to talk about edge, but we talk about governance and standards and things like that. And I would encourage people, if they want to be part of a, of a hallway track conversation, uh, jump in and, and, and join that. They can find out more about that. The site is the2030.cloud. Rob, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, stay tuned. After this, there is going to be a tech bite from Singtel. We're going to be talking about cloud networking and troubleshooting performance issues. It should be a wild and crazy time. Welcome to the Tech Bytes portion of our episode. We're in a six-part series with Singtel about cloud networking. That is, how to make your existing wide area network communicate with cloud services in an effective way that maybe your legacy WAN isn't able to. Today is part three of six, and we're chatting with Mark Seabrook, Global Solutions Manager at Singtel, regarding strange ideas and misconceptions customers have about connecting to the cloud. Mark, welcome back. One prevalent solution to connect private networks to cloud networks is SD-WAN. We, in fact, talked about SD-WAN in the previous episode, and it, it seems like it should be like really straightforward, right? Plumb an SD-WAN router into your cloud VPC, it joins the tunnel mesh, and it all just, just works, right? Yeah, so a little bit of a misconception with some customers. Um, when people get into SD-WAN, sure, it looks very plug and play, and it is. Um, if you, when you start off and you've got maybe only 10, 20 sites, but you get up into the 500 sites, the thousand sites, um, very, very quickly, you add in some cloud connectivity, some, you know, web security, you can get very, very, very granular. You can have tunnels upon tunnels upon tunnels. And if you don't plan it correctly, you let it get out of control, it can it can become um, problematic. Right. I'm just envisioning in my head, like, you know, 10 points all connecting together to some clouds. And that's, I can kind of hold that in my head. And then you said 500 sites. And I'm like, no, no, that is just, that's just a rubber band ball. And I have no idea what's going on. Sure. Yeah. 
but let's let's not overstate the complexity right if i'm in a if i'm in a single region in a single country like you said 10 20 sites sd-wan that's that's pretty functional out of the box right one of the other big things that you really need to plan and look at with with an sd network is regions around the world so for example if you're a, a customer that's only got sites in the united states it's totally free the internet's free there's no limitations you've got ample bandwidth if you're doing uh, an sd network across the globe other parts of the world where things are regulated you have to really think deeply about this okay you just brought up a point here that didn't it's just just hitting home you you're talking about the connectivity from america being free not free as in dollars free as in there's no restrictions if you're on the internet and connecting from one point in uh the us to another point in the us you're not thinking about there's some bottleneck where someone's monitoring my traffic and going to throw some stuff away uh there's no government agency um well we we can get into conspiracy theories which would be super fun but we're not going to do that not, today no. but there's, there's no there's no restrictions on where i can push traffic but you're saying, depending on where I am routing internationally, it gets complicated if I'm trying to push traffic into, oh, you brought up the example of China, let's say. Is that, that's the point you're making. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the most famous one is, is China. The, everybody sort of knows in the networking world knows about the great firewall of China. But it's, just, it's not just the firewall. It's the way um, internet traffic is routed through the three main providers within China and it's very much a province to province and there are choke points. So we get a lot of customers who are in China, they're on SD-WAN, but they're pointing, their corporate has them pointing to a, an AWS or an Azure target outside of China, even in the States. And that's very problematic. So you really have to think around that when you're designing from a, a plain piece of paper. Uh, that is very interesting to me because I think of China as the great firewall. You know, there's just like a big border around it and all Internet traffic that is outbound gets filtered or inbound gets filtered. But I never thought of from province to province because uh, that's a very different experience than what you see in the United States. So it's literally if something's coming from one province to another that might get filtered. Yeah, filtered. And it's also a choke point. So. If, if you're sending a packet from New Jersey to California, there's a billion ways it can get there in the States, uh, obviously just based on BGP. Within China, for example, it's a lot more regulated. So um, even, tra in, even traffic within China, um, there are a lot of choke points before you can even get out of China through what we commonly refer to as the Great Firewall. Uh, Mark, another challenge here, I think, is uh, even though we're in the Asia region trying to move traffic from, say, Hong Kong to China, that depending, it could go all the way across the Pacific to the west coast of the U.S. and then back again? Sure, absolutely. So if you're using a, a regular uh, vanilla uh, DIA internet, from if you did a trace route from Hong Kong to a target in, um, in China, most likely it's going to go via a, a California West Coast hub. Um, so we, we kind of get around that by using um, our IP transit where we have um, direct peerings with the three main Chinese telcos. And so we can, we can actually uh, determine the route so it's a more direct pathway um, from Hong Kong into China, for example. 
I was going to say, going out to the West Coast, uh, San Jose, that seems suboptimal in terms of routing. I know routing isn't always the most optimal route, but, it, you know, that, right. that seems not great. Not great performance. <laughs> and, that, and that's another thing with SD-WAN. Um, if you're going pure internet, there are a lot of what we just call suboptimal situations around the world. You can, uh, you can get traffic, you know, and it's wrapped up in a tunnel and it will flow from from india to the states back to london for example okay <laughs> interesting apology so uh what approach would you take if you're designing an, an sd wan solution would you go with a, a, a very regional approach for that or, or what what's your advice to avoid these kind of pitfalls mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so a lot of our customers um especially our big customers with say a thousand sites we will keep them in a regional uh, topology. So what that basically means, let's just pick on the states. All of the sites in the US would point back to two Equinix data centers in an active failover. You'd have a 100 gig ring between those two Equinixes back to their private data center. And then from the actual um, in-country uh, data centers and private hubs, we will link them with point to points or a large MPLS to their other regions. So for example, you might have a customer that just divides their network up into the States, uh, Europe, um, say in Germany, um, Middle East and Asia. So, yeah, what you're highlighting here is even though SD-WAN with the, the tunnel overlay abstracts whatever the transport is underneath it away, if you want to get optimal performance and depending on who, which the endpoints are that you're trying to connect, you may need to do some, uh, I guess we could describe it, Mark, as over the top routing engineering that is going to make sure those endpoints are communicating in an optimal way that you can't just point your SD-WAN tunnel at the default gateway and say, good luck, little packet, you're going to be fine, because <laughs> it may not be fine without that engineering that, that is going to regionally optimize traffic flows. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you, the very last thing you want is to go to an SD-WAN topology, gain all the benefits of SD-WAN, and then have your internet breakout going six times around the world before it hits uh, the cloud target. So you want to keep everything um, kind of in region um, as, far, as far as cloud connectivity is concerned. That's, that's always been our philosophy. Okay, so if you're taking advantage of some cloud services, you want to hook into AWS or Microsoft Azure, you would have those cloud connect points that I think we talked about in a previous tech bite uh, that you provide. Those would be in those Equinix data centers that you've set up as the, the two active failover sites for a region. Is that the design we're talking about? Uh, yes and no. So, um, yes, we um, a lot of the traffic will go be routed to their uh, data centers. And then it will hit the cloud through uh, our SD Connect product, which takes them in through a direct connection. A lot of other applications, and this is the beauty of SD-WAN, a lot of the other applications will just be inspected on the first packet at the site, go straight to the internet breakout and, and point towards a Zscaler node. And then from Zscaler, then into the cloud, um, just through an internet gateway. Okay, so if I'm using Microsoft 365 at one of those branch sites, that's the path that's going to take. It doesn't need to go over an express route or anything. You can just use the public internet. Sure. So, I mean, the, the, the rule of thumb that I've seen with a lot of Fortune 
uh, 100s is, yeah, your Office 365, kind of low security, um, general um, office type tools. They're going to go for an internet breakout. We're still going to put them through Zscaler to scrub them. Sure. But they're going to go straight over the internet to the low, to the most optimal um, cloud gateway in that territory. There's other applications where for regulations, they'll be pushed through a tunnel back to the Equinix hubs, maybe scrubbed through a corporate set of firewalls there, and then pushed into the cloud via an SD Connect gateway. Okay, yeah, and I know a lot of those SaaS, one, uh, SaaS applications like Office 365, they they will sort of figure out what the best endpoint is for you based off of DNS queries. So they don't want you mucking around with that. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, even, um, for example, Silverpeak, they will push out an updated list of the most optimal um, cloud targets over the internet to all of the sites. So it's kind of very automated. Gotcha. So I, the main takeaway for me here is that you can't just slap an SD-WAN into your networking and hope it works. There, there has to be some amount of planning behind what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think with, uh, at least on a global scale, and when you're getting up into like the thousand sites, you really have to have a clean uh, design. You really have to design it out on paper, lots of drawings, lots of visios. If you just put it all together and install it and, and people in one region build certain stuff and people, IT staff in another region build other stuff and they don't all match together, you can get some real wishes. <laughs> the packet that never finds a home. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Well, if folks want to hear more about your thoughts on SD-WAN, uh, how can they reach out to you on the internet? Sure, yeah. Just hit me up on LinkedIn uh, under my name and uh, I'd love to talk to anybody. All right. Well, Mark Seabrook uh, from Singtel, thank you so much for joining us today. And hey, listeners, thank you for listening into this Tech Bite. This was just part three of a six-part series. So we're going to hear more on building cloud-ready networks with Singtel in upcoming episodes. Part four will be in a couple of weeks, and we'll be tackling some real-world customer scenarios so you can learn from their experience while building your own cloud-ready network. Thanks to our guests for appearing on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, virtual high fives to you for tuning in and sticking all the way to the end. If you have suggestions for future shows, we really do want to hear about them. You can hit us up on Twitter. It's at Day 2 Cloud Show. Or I do have a contact form on my website. It's nedinthecloud.com. You can reach me through there and just... Whatever's in your, in your brain that you want to share, you could be a guest on the show even. Imagine that. How crazy would that be? <laughs> uh, did you know that Packet Pushers has a weekly newsletter? It's true. It's called Human Infrastructure Magazine, and it's loaded with the best stuff we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It is free, and it does not suck. You can get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.